All right, so if you turn in your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, have you ever had one of those recalibration moments where something that, uh, that you've always thought or been taught about a passage and suddenly you read it again or hear it preached and, and, and it's like, wow, I've never seen that before. And you get recalibrated about the passage and what it really means. Well, I had one of those moments with this Luke passage we're going to look at. It's in Luke 10, a few years back. And I remember the moment very clearly when the truth of it just broke in on me. I was driving back from a business trip. I was in Ackworth. I was on Highway 92, about to turn left onto uh, Glade Road. That's how clear I remember this moment. I know exactly where I was when it... uh when the truth like broke in on me and I was like, wow. Well, I've been reminded of that lately and I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to work through this passage, uh, you know, verse by verse and it ended up turning into this lesson we're going to look at today. So, so we're going to turn today to a rather famous and popular parable of Jesus that only appears in the Gospel of Luke and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. But first, we need to make a point about parables in general because it plays into any study of any parable. So the question is, what is the purpose of parables? And what's the general consensus out in the modern church today about why Jesus taught in parables? Because I sort of grew up uh, thinking or being taught that you know, Jesus was the master storyteller. Right, and that his purpose in using parables was to take this, this high theological truth and wrap it in a story and so it's down on the lower shelf right, for, the, for the common man. And so he taught in parables, basically stories and analogies, because he knew we needed it simple. And parables were his preferred way to take complicated theological truth and make it more accessible and understandable. And there's some truth to that, of course. And, and Jesus was very good at using everyday things to make his point. You know, but I've, I've heard it taught today that we, need, that we need to take this to mean that we need to imitate this in such a way and to a degree that good sermons are good stories with a theological undertone. Right? And that good, great pastors are great storytellers. And we should certainly not teach and preach today like Paul did in the book of Romans or like the rest of the epistles in the New Testament. You know, that is in these clear doctrinal uh, statements with good, deep explanations and, and these long argument chains of propositional truth. And instead, we should be really good and entertaining storytellers because that's what Jesus did, right? Take God's truth and wrap it up in a, you know, a modern movie theme or whatever is popular in culture today uh, so that it's more understandable and accessible to the everyday man. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Except, well, not so much. If we back up Two chapters from what we're going to look at in Luke 10 back to Luke 8 and verse 9. 
and let's let the Scriptures tell us why Jesus switched to teaching in parables. And it says there, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, well, there's a little hint right there that something's going on. So when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables. So that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Well, that's interesting. There's nothing about making it more understandable or more accessible to the general crowds of people. There's nothing here about, guys, I'm the master storyteller. Learn from me. It's a great way to make truth easily understandable. In fact, the text says it's, it's quite the opposite. Jesus says he's doing it to hide the truth from them. I mean, it says, for the others, it is so that seeing they won't see and hearing they won't understand. So it's a form of concealment. Well, that's got to be a typo. I mean, surely that's not it. But Matthew and Mark also back this up. If you look at Matthew 13, switch over to, hold your place in Luke and look over at Matthew 13. This is a chapter that's all about this. It's just parable after parable with some explanations in between. Verse 2 says there were great crowds, so he got into a boat. And then verse 3 says he told them many things in parables. And in verse 10, if you drop down to 10, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. And he expounds on that all the way down to verse 17. Go read this chapter sometime. It's interesting. Now skip down to verses 34 and 35. And it makes it clear there. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So taken together then, far from being about making the truth easier to grasp. Now this was actually a judgment. The people and the religious leaders... I mean, they, at this point, they're not convinced by his clear teaching. They were not convinced by his many authenticating signs and miracles. And their hearts are hardened to the point that in the previous chapter, in Matthew 12, if you look, they, uh, they attribute his works to Satan. Right? He does what he does by the power of Satan. And so he switches to parables. And he now speaks nothing but parables to them to hide further truth from those who will not hear. It gives a little new meaning to where Jesus says throughout the Gospels, right? For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Well, these will not hear. 
And if we're going to be held accountable for the truth that we have heard and understood, then this was actually merciful in a way. It was actually a mercy that he hides further truth from those that are so enslaved that they attribute his, his works to Satan's power. And then notice one last thing about the parable. Still in Matthew 13, look at verse 18 and verse 36. After the crowds leave, Jesus sits down and explains the parables to His disciples in clear statements. So if the purpose of telling the story in a parable was to make it easier and more accessible, then Jesus failed miserably. But Jesus drops the parable and just tells them the simple meaning and they get it. In fact, Mark says the same thing in his gospel, culminating in Mark 4.33, where he says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. That's, that's a big statement there. He's teaching the crowds in parables. But privately, he has to get his disciples aside and say, this is what that meant, and explain it to them. So I'll make a statement and then give an example. I can't share the gospel with you by putting it in an analogy or a story. And here's an example. I can't get saved by reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right? Now, as a saved person, I may recognize that Aslan is a picture of Jesus, and I may like the story because of that, because of the truth that I already know that it reminds me of. And so I may like that story because it reminds me of the clear truth statements that I already know from Scripture. But you will never be saved by believing Aslan was a good and self-sacrificial lion who died in the place of a selfish boy. The scriptures, <clears throat> the scriptures are the only thing that are God-breathed and are the power of God unto salvation. Not my imagination or some fictional story that somehow incorporates elements of it. So it's about clear and doctrinal, propositional, historical truth statements. Right? Who Jesus Christ was, what Jesus Christ did, what that means for us. I can't hide in an analogy or a story. Okay, so with that point established, let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. So it appears only in Luke's Gospel. Now probably most of the time when you've heard this parable or been taught it as a kid, you began at 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. But let's back up to verse 25 and get the context because it's vital. Because if you just start verse 30, I think you end up with the wrong message at the end. And we're going to walk through this phrase by phrase and we're going to try to put ourselves in the middle of this conversation. 
and we're going to slow down and we're really going to watch this, this conversation progress and follow along and see what's happening here. So in uh, Luke 10, 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up. So this is not a lawyer like today, like in a court of law. Right? This is a uh, spurt of the day in law. So it's a religious leader. And so this lawyer stands up and it says to put him to the test. Now it's hard to read the heart's intention in that purely from the words. I mean, is this like we're actually supposed to do? As in test the spirits to see whether they are from God? Or is this like in John 8, 6 where it says, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Trying to get him. You can't tell just from the words there, but I think the context is going to lead us to the latter understanding because this lawyer goes on to show us he doesn't understand the gospel. And it later is going to tell us a little more about his heart. So uh, it seems that this is more the, I'm trying to catch him in something here. So this lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what does that question presuppose? Right, that eternal life is a matter of my doing in some way. So it might help to contrast his question with another question, maybe this question. How can a sinner like me ever stand before a holy God? Now, the kind of question like Martin Luther wrestled with, right? That's an entirely different hard attitude going on there instead of what can I do to inherit eternal life? So a question like Luther was tormented by and wrestled with or like the psalmist in Psalm 130 where it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Totally different attitude there. Or the tax collector in the temple, right? But there's no sense of that hard attitude at all here. It's what accomplishment must I achieve to gain the reward of eternal life. So that's an interesting thing to think about there. Tells us a little bit about what may be going on in this man's mind and heart. But he, Jesus, said to him. Now the responses of Jesus are always fascinating when he's in these kind of conversations because he typically gives a response that is custom designed to that individual situation, to their circumstance. And it's usually custom designed to shine a light on a particular area in their life and in their heart, Because you would think with that question, Jesus would simply respond with, you don't do anything. You repent of your sins and you believe in me. Because that is the answer. But why doesn't he go there? He doesn't go there. Instead, he says, what's written in the law? And how do you read it? So he goes to the law. 
on a clear point question like, how do I get saved? Jesus, I mean, you're blowing it. What an opportunity. Come on. You know, but Jesus is in no hurry to add a false convert here. He's going to take him to the law for a reason. So he lets this man answer with his understanding of the law. It is a good one. So he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Well, my goodness. I mean, that's, that was Jesus' own answer when he was asked the same question. Over in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, it says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. There we are with that testing again. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord... Whoop, I skipped a line. He said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets. So that was Jesus' own summation of the law. So when he was faced with the same basic question, he gave the same answer as this lawyer in Luke. I mean, you just can't get any better than that. Jesus asked him to sum up what was written in the law, and he answered perfectly. So next, in Luke 10 there, Jesus freely admits that's just the right answer. He said to him, you have answered correctly. And then he says something very, very odd. Do this and you will live. This is pretty vital here. You ask about obtaining eternal life. You want heaven? Love God. Love your neighbor. Done. I mean, we hear that today. It's the gospel of just love. But what in the world is Jesus teaching here? Love God, love your neighbor, and that's it? That's salvation? What what is he doing here? Well, don't answer that yet. Hold on to that question because we're going to come back to it at the end. Now, this next part here is vital as well. There's two things here that it tells us that we need to understand the, the heart of Jesus' message here and why he's, he's doing this. Because next it says, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. So that's important. There's his motivation said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the scripture peers into this man's heart and reveals it. He is desiring to justify himself. Ask Jesus to clarify just which neighbors are we talking about here. Now that's pretty big on three accounts. What's... 
What do you see that's behind that question? I came up with three things. Huh? Looking for a loophole. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, what else do you see there? You know, there are some people. Now, I love most people, but there are some. You know. Right? Yeah, they like to do that. Let's get him talking and then we're listening to see if we can catch him in something. Right, the list I came up with, first, he's still in this mindset that he is justified before a holy God by doing things. Second, he goes straight to the love your neighbor part, jumping over the love God part. Skipping right over that. And maybe he thinks he's got that one down. And third, like you said, he thinks he loves some, if not most, of his neighbors in accordance with the requirement. But he wants to split hairs over the definition of neighbor because there are some folks. Well, I can think of a few that, that maybe I don't love like I should. So with all that in mind, now Jesus switches to parable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now Jesus switches to parable and remember the reason for parables. So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now have you spent any time in a, or grown up in a typical church out there, right? Things just start flooding in, right? Uh, you know, Jerusalem's high up and, and Jericho's down low and so it's a rocky terrain and there's plenty of places for robbers and thieves to hide and all that kind of stuff. And that priest saw the man cross the road and passed on by. Now don't be like that priest. Right? He was a priest for goodness sake and he should have known better and done something. And so he goes on, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw passed by on the other side. So here's someone else who should have known better. This was a Levite, a worker in the temple. I mean, come on, people whose jobs are in the church should know better. Don't be like the Levite. But wait, there's more. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Uh, What do we know about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans? It's not good, right? Lots of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
Yeah, hated by the Jews. They intermarried with the surrounding peoples and they're the half-breeds and not the pure people of God anymore. And the Jews would go out of their way not to travel through the Samaritan territory. And so this animosity went both ways here. I mean, you see it at the woman at the well episode where she's like blown away. She's a Samaritan woman and she's like, what are you doing even talking to me? So... So this is a big suspense point to this lawyer. You, know, I, you can imagine him going, wait a minute, a Samaritan comes along? So Jesus continues the parable. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, there we are. Right, that's the moral of the story. In many churches across the land, here we have the main point. This parable is about compassion. Having compassion towards others who are hurting. And there's nothing wrong with that. Except that's not the point of this. Right? I mean, if you've grown up in the church, I mean, you can hear it. Don't be like the priest or the Levite. Be like the Samaritan. Okay, have a blessed day. You're dismissed. Except that's not it. And I'm going to guess that that's the same exact point the lawyer left with. But it's not the point. Let's hang on a bit and pay close attention to this next part. So Jesus continues. He went to him, the Samaritan, went to the beat up guy, half dead guy. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he said his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. Okay, Samaritan, who was supposed to hate this guy, instead stops what he's doing, puts his schedule, no matter how important, on hold, and tends to this guy. He spends his own resources of oil and wine to take care of and he puts him on his animal and takes him to an inn and cares for him. That's a pretty compassionate guy there. And the next day, oh, how about that? The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Okay, so he's, he's paid for this night at the inn. And, and don't forget, he just spent an unforeseen, not in my plan today, night at the inn with this guy. And so the next day, he goes to the innkeeper and gives him two denarii, which is two days' wages. Now, I went and, and looked, and according to the Social Security Administration, the average wage in 2016 in the USA is $48,664.73. So I divided that out, and that means $100. $79 is the average daily wage, at least in 2016, if you made 48000 So if you were the average worker, two denarii would be $358. Now Jesus doesn't leave it there. He keeps going, right, saying, take care of him. Now he's talking to the innkeeper, right, the next day. 
He says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I get back or when I come back. Think about that for a minute. Take care of him and whatever more you spend. Jesus then ends with a question designed to answer the lawyer's original question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And of course, with the story told that way, it leads to only one reasonable answer. Which is apparently the story and the point the lawyer probably left with. He said, the one who showed him mercy. So there's your answer as to who everybody. Nice to everybody. Okay. End of story. Lesson learned. Go be a kind, compassionate person. Which we should be. Get the wrong message here. Except Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says something extremely odd. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Period. We are left going, Really? Now wait just a minute. He asked you how to have eternal life, and you said, Love God and love your neighbor. Those are works. And he asked for clarification on the term neighbor and you tell him a nice little story with a moral that everyone is your neighbor. So go be nice and compassionate to everyone and you'll be saved. I mean, is that the message? Is that what he's saying? I'm pretty sure the lawyer left with that message. Right? And most people today can leave with that message when reading this story. And because this was a parable... I think he probably left thinking, well, I guess I need to go love on a Samaritan. I better add that to my checklist. I'm going to love on the next Samaritan I see. Next person with a cardboard sign in their hand on the side of the road better watch out because now I know what to do and I've been taught what to do. And in this case, that is a tragic conclusion. But it's also the conclusion most would come to. Now, why is that a tragic conclusion in this case? Because hearing, he still doesn't hear. And seeing, he still doesn't see. So let's go back to that question we had at the first odd answer Jesus gave about do this and you will live. The lawyer asked about, well, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus went straight to the law and asked him to sum it up. And he did so correctly. And in verse 28, Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, we today, putting ourselves in the middle of this conversation, ought to go, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean, do that, and you'll have eternal life? And then we think about what he's really saying. 
and it starts to sink in. All right, the point, the punchline starts to get us. What's he saying? Well, remember the lawyer jumped right over the first part and just asked a hair-splitting, clarifying question about, well, who's my neighbor? Tell me your definition of neighbor, Jesus, right? Did he skip over that Jesus is saying, do this and you'll live? Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, all your strength. And this poor blind lawyer apparently was okay with that and was more worried about the definition of neighbor and how to justify himself because he knew, well, there are some people that I just just can't. But which of us who do see and hear can put a big check mark by that love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul every day perfectly? None of us. I've been a believer for 30 years and I haven't spent a single day where I say I can meet that requirement. Check. Forget the neighbors. I don't love God perfectly. Right? I can't get over the first time. You see, this lawyer isn't there with a broken and contrite heart, knowing that he is so desperately in need of God's totally undeserved grace. So he, he gets a parable. One designed to shed just enough light that if he was really hearing and he could really see the Spirit was really working on him, it would break him. It would bring him to his knees. He'd crumble before God in confession and repentance and pleading for grace and mercy through Jesus. But instead, he thinks he's got it and he just needs to add being nice to Samaritans to the mix and check that box. That's why it's tragic in this situation. You see, this is not some moralistic story about giving ten bucks to the next homeless person you see on the side of the road. Don't be like the first two guys and just look the other way and pass on by. You stop and then give the guy ten bucks and leave feeling really good about your righteousness. Christians are kind, so be nice. And we are to be kind and nice. And we can go to many, many scriptures about that. But it's not the point here. We should be compassionate. It just has zero to do with our justification. Unsaved pagans do the exact same thing all the time, just like this lawyer, to justify themselves and feel good. That's not the point here. See, here's the point. I imagine Jesus thinks, well, when He gave His answer... And ask the question. You can imagine Jesus thinking, well, I see you skip right over that part about loving God perfectly. And you think you've done that. So, okay, I'll play along. And let's deal with your loving your neighbor 
as yourself. Let me tell you, Mr. Lawyer, what that would look like. What it would really look like. So I'm going to switch to a modern day example. So you see a smelly, ragged, homeless person on the side of the road with a please help scribbled on a piece of cardboard. Now, you don't just stop and give them a few bucks out of your spare change while you're waiting for the light to change. Or even, if you're really radical and sold out, take them to get a hamburger at a local burger joint. No, you stop what you're doing and you put the next few days on hold. You get them in your car, take them to the doctor, get all the ailments fixed, pay the bill on the way out, you take them to the local hotel, you buy them a room, you feed them, you let them get a shower, and you stay the night as well. The next day you go to the front desk and you write the hotel a check for $358 to take care of his immediate expenses. And then you tell the person at the front desk whatever he needs. And you know, without limit. Whatever this guy needs and whatever he spends with no limit, put it on my tab and I'll pay every cent when I return. Wow. Well, that's just ludicrous. But here's the point. You would do that and more for yourself. You would spend every dime you have to meet your own needs. You would spare yourself absolutely nothing you even thought you needed. So that is what love your neighbor as yourself means. And we've never spent a day in our life loving our neighbor like that, much less an enemy. So this parable is not some nice little moralistic story about being kind to strangers. It's a crushing example to show us the standard is far above. The standard is out of our reach. This parable was designed to crush this lawyer's sense that he was meeting the standard. That he can put a big check mark by the law. even of lateral human relationships, much less loving God perfectly. But hearing, he couldn't hear, and probably left thinking he needed to give a few bucks to the next Samaritan he saw in order to remain right with God. This is about justification. But the real point is this. I must have Christ. My righteousness is filthy rags. I don't and can't meet the standard. We don't love God every moment of every day with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We haven't lived a day where we loved our neighbor like we love ourselves. God have mercy on us. And so we must have a righteousness from outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness that that somehow gets credited to our account in order to meet 
My righteousness will never do. I must have this kind of righteousness credited or we perish in hell and rightly and justly so. So this poor lawyer couldn't see and he would not see. In Romans 10.3, Paul lays this out, the the basic problem uh, with all of his people. He just prayed for them and he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that perfect righteousness, that standard that's way, way up here, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so we could dig into that, but that's the basic problem, right? We don't see the perfection required by God. And thus we don't run to Him eating for grace and mercy. So if you're ignorant of that, as they were, as Paul pleaded for his people, then Jesus is not vital or precious, or even really necessary. Right? If, there, if I just need to do a few things to check the box. You don't need a Savior, and you don't need a perfect righteousness, because in your mind, your actions get you close enough to pass muster. So here's what I'd like us to leave with today from this great little moralistic story about being kind to strangers. The problem with this lawyer is he thought that after all time, check the boxes. But I'd like you to leave here today. You've been a believer for decades with the sense that your need for Jesus Christ is as desperate today than it has ever been. Because you know more. Right? You know more of Him. And you know more of you. And I think that's the real message of this parable. Know that I've never spent a day loving my neighbor like I love me. And it makes us all the more desperate for the gospel. Day by day. Moment by moment. I need thee every hour. And so we should recognize today, even more so than the day we were initially saved, our need for Jesus Christ, His forgiveness of sins and His imputed righteousness, right? counted as ours, don't deserve it. So yes, we are definitely being progressively sanctified of true believers, but please, please don't lessen your need for Jesus Christ every day, His forgiveness and His righteousness. He was the only one who ever fulfilled the law. He was the only one who ever could check the box. And you and I aren't even close. The law condemns us, just like it condemned this lawyer, but he couldn't see it. Hearing, So we must have Jesus. That's the message of the Good Samaritan. So these doctrines, these 
big words we like to throw out, like penal substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. Those aren't just some um, intellectual seminary exercise. Those are our life. Those are our hope. So don't get so super sanctified in your own mind that you lose your desperation for Jesus Christ. Don't leave your first love. And so don't don't walk away. I mean, just to sum it up. Well, let me let me read one of these. You know how how I can tell sometimes whether I'm I'm getting there or not. Listen to my I listen to my own prayers and and see if they sound anything like some of these old Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision. For men who probably put me to shame and sanctification, but the way they prayed. And, oh Lord, my every sense, member, faculty, affection is a snare to me. I can scarce open my eyes, but I envy those above me or despise those below me. How soon do slanders and vain jest and wanton speeches creep into my heart? Thou knowest that all these are snares by my corruptions and that my greatest snare is myself. Yet what can thou expect of dust but levity? of corruption but defilement. But here's the key. But keep me ever mindful of my natural state, but let me not forget my heavenly title or the grace that can deal with every sin. That daily dependence on grace because I know me. Or this one, O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learn that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am. O Lord, I have a wild heart and I cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the order of grace. Wow. So don't walk away from the parable of the Good Samaritan with a moralistic story about being nicer to folks. Walk away with a desperation for your Savior and a deep, deep amazement of His grace and mercy to us. Any, uh, anything anybody wants to add or, or say before we close? Like I said, I remember when all this hit me. Highway 92, turn and it just boom right and listening to a, a podcast of of this and it was like wow yeah 
All right, well, let's close in prayer.